0: All right, welcome, welcome. We'll, uh, we'll jump in and people come, they'll, they'll fill out the, the back, but feel free if you want more coffee, donuts, bagels, feel free. Um, this is just friends hanging out. This is nothing more than that, truly nothing more than that. Um, and we'll kick off the episode right now, just with how we record our episodes. It's literally just our weekly conversations That Joseph and I have had for just about every week for like six years, and and we decided to record them um, about a year ago. So this is just our casual conversation of things that are going through my mind, and uh, and today has a little more structure, given that you all are here. But uh, then it will in about forty minutes open up for Q and A on really anything that comes comes to mind from the conversation or prior, and we understand people have work and things like that, so feel free to bow out um, at that point or at any point during the morning. But uh, welcome everybody and well, thanks for coming. Yes, Great thank to have you. you all. Uh, this is our first one so we probably will also make uh, some mistakes along the way, um, <laughs> but hopefully it's uh, the coffee and donuts will smooth it over. So Joseph, good morning. Mm, Master James. Master Joseph. Here we are again. I was thinking for today's conversation. I was thinking that we would start with a little bit of what is Vedanta, and then in this this five to ten thousand year old philosophy, mm. and and what it is not. Sure. Um, because it's uh, just as as integral in my own in my own exposure to Vedanta of what it is. It was a it was a long journey of understanding what it isn't, Mm. because there are so many misconceptions in our head. There are so Mm. many thoughts, uh, especially growing up in the West with no exposure to really any Eastern philosophy outside of a few different Mm. um, bespoke sources. Until I was maybe 26, it was so foreign to me, and in my head had a lot of misconceptions. So I think that would be the, the main structure of it, but I also wanted to kick it off with one question, um,
1: and that is, do you believe in God? <laughs> A small one to start. Yeah. Uh, to be true, I don't believe in anything else. That's about the best way I, I know how to answer that question. There is only that reality. Everything comes from that reality, everything goes into that reality. Uh, There is only God. Out of the whole, the whole emerges, and the whole is no less for the emergence of the whole. This is the beginning of... Do you mind saying that one more time? uh, Out of the whole, the whole emerges, and the whole is not any less for that emergence. Mm. So, uh, infinite minus infinite is infinite. There's only infinite, and everything we see is only that, but... Uh, out of ignorance and delusion we project something else that we call the world Hmm. so honestly i didn't really know you were going to come at at (laughs) us with this one brother thank you but uh, but that's that is the (laughs) that is the highest truth um so anyway i'm glad you did Isavasya upanishad which is maybe the earliest upanishad and i'll bring it into what vedanta is Isavasya Upanishad starts off with the invocation Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnat, purnamidat Purnasya, Purnamadaya, purnamevava Shishate. which is what I just said. The infinite is whole. Out of the whole comes the whole, comes everything. And the whole is is no less for it. Hmm. So there is only consciousness, there is only the self. There is only the Godhead. There is only the truth. Even the misconception of it, the projection of it that we all experience as the world, as life in the world, as our individuality, it doesn't, it doesn't make it any less. You know, so out of the clay comes all the pots and the everything that's made out of clay. Hmm. But clay is not any less. It, out of Uh, the ocean comes so many waves and they exist and function and crash but the wave the the ocean is is no less in that way it's like saying do you believe uh," it's like asking a wave do you believe in the ocean (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. there is only the ocean ultimately now what I believe and what I experience is something different how so what I believe and what we all experience is something different you may enjoy this idea, I may enjoy this idea, but we have an experience of duality of plurality, of limitation of individuality. This is our experience as human beings, and we have to deal with it. but that idea certainly helps us to uh, function from an objective state mm-hmm. where we keep that in mind and function, keep that thought of the reality in our in our awareness and function this is this is the practice of Vedanta. But the ultimate state is realizing there is only God and that you are that. So um, Vedanta started with the Upanishads, one of which I just mentioned. Um, It is ancient Indian philosophy. And the first time it was written down was in the Upanishads. This is the first recording of it. But it's said to be eternal principles, sanatana dharma, principles of life and living that uh, And these highest truths that have Always been there and they've been revealed to certain people masters and sages over the millennia and Over time more and more and more books have been added like the Bhagavad Gita and all the works of Shankara that we talk about on the podcast all the time So that whole wisdom tradition is Vedanta. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we talk
0: about Shankra ch- in, in many of the episodes in chakra, the, which I just found out two weeks ago means destroyer. And it's such a interesting visual just thinking about this sage, this, this uh, philosopher of the highest order being a destroyer, not being uh, some type of worldly king that you think sits atop everything owns everything um, but is given the nickname of destroyer mm-hmm. and for some reason that just really coming from the startup world where everything is about disruption and in, in, in one sense it's about building things but really in a philosophical sense I I think I got into building startups 15 years ago um, because I had this internal wiring to destroy mm-hmm. um, and maybe it was just and disrupt disrupt and destroy I can't believe we do it this way right this is so we don't need to do it this way it could be so much better and in many ways that creation comes from that destruction and maybe it's channeled in a healthy way of of destruction um instead of just wanting to just go break glass balls which I did love doing when I was like 10. But it, you grow up and you you apply it maybe to a higher ideal. If we could do this so much better, let's go disrupt this industry. Mm-hmm. Can't believe this big incumbent does it this way. It could be so much better. But there's something to uh, the continued evolution and and feeling that there's ever higher means to destroy. To where two weeks ago I was like, wow, his nickname or his name means destroyer. Yeah, he's another name for Shiva. Mm -hmm. Do you mind uh, talking a little bit about that as a backdrop and then we'll get into what is Vedanta? Um, And it's totally fine if it seamlessly, they go right into each other, but why Shiva, the destroyer? Mm -hmm. Why even that, that notion of a destroyer to a Western mind that thinks, no, no, it's about building, creating, maintaining, expanding?
1: Building and creating is only one piece of life. Life is creation, maintenance, and destruction. That's what it is. You're born, you exist, you die. There's a... Everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end in that way. So this Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, this, this trilogy of gods in the Hindu pantheon, is only symbolic of these forces, symbolic of these forces of nature. Hi. Uh, Come on in. Um, So it's only symbolic of this process that um, we're all going through personally and that the world itself is going through. And they're necessary. Obviously, if there's only creation, we have a problem. If we only keep creating things, if more and more beings keep coming and we exist, I mean, we already have a problem, you know. (laughs) We'd have a serious problem. People have to go. 17 mother-in-law. characters (laughs) this is swami's yeah swami's joke he always says yeah you'll have 17 grandmothers in every house but um the process of maintaining life is through creation and destruction as things come into existence they exist and then they're destroyed this is the process so shiva is um just a manifestation not just He, he is representative of that power symbolic of that power as it were there's no uh from a Vedantic lens, there's no Shiva sitting on top of the mountain somewhere. There's no one sitting there hurting, destroying somebody, you know, uh, for whatever reason. There's no judgment like that. It's just an impersonal force of nature that happens. The wave is born, it exists, and it crashes on the shore. That's The crashing is the force of Shiva. What is the, si- the philosophical significance
0: of... Destruction. one of our previous episodes, you mentioned something around destroying
1: the illusion, destroying these... Yeah, so these so the, the subjectively it's destruction of our ignorance. Hmm. Destroyer of our ignorance. So like Ganesha is the son of Shiva. Ganesha is the famous God. Oh really? God. Oh sure, yeah. Maybe I think I yeah, knew yeah, that. Yeah. I yeah, he's the son of, of Shiva. And uh, he is seen as the destroyer of obstacles. So, destroyer of any obstacles. So, people keep Ganesha at the entrance to their business or the entrance to their house to destroy anything that may impede whatever you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And likewise, if you that's sort of a worldly, I guess, use of him. Uh, but destruction of ignorance uh, through... I mean, he's connected to Shiva. He's his son. So, on the... On the diocese in the ashram where Swami speaks, there's always a Ganesha you would have seen on mm-hmm. your trips. Of course, yeah. Uh, so it's. you. People pray to Ganesha to destroy the obstacle to that recognition of yourself as the self, which we were talking about at the beginning. And that, it's not an external thing. No one's coming to save us. But. Uh, from a symbolic point of view, it's, it's useful. That let, let that higher power destroy my mm-hmm. ignorance in the, in the form of Ganesha, in the form of Shiva.
0: Yeah, in the first nine years of exposure to Eastern philosophy, I never, for the last 10, I, I never, I think I mentioned this to you before, I always just thought that the, the symbolic deities and gods were just so peripheral, not really interested, it's almost elementary much more interested in the, the philosophy, the words of the masters. Yeah. And, and then in the last year, it's been such a discovery of, you can have a text that you read through and then you can have this, like Ganesha is a good example, this thing that I've completely disregarded for, for so long, just thought mm. it was too, maybe a little more elementary. It's like this three dimensional. Amazing. Yeah. Philosophy. It's a three dimensional uh, yeah. text. Yeah. In terms of, why is there a mouse there? Yeah. Why is his belly so big? Yeah. Um, and now uh-huh. there's this crazy appreciation. Now whenever I see one, I'm like, I'm like, oh interesting, they put the mouse there. Oh, interesting, he's laying down. What does
1: that mean? I thought of bringing him, but I, I forgot, you know, that way she was here. But uh, yeah, here, here, for here. sure, the whole thing is symbolic. These, these, are, these gods and goddesses are, are, are portraits of the entire philosophy. Ganesha is a, is a symbolic of everything you, you can learn in Vedanta. The path to the, to the truth and the state of the truth at the same time. That's an amazing thing. They're both a portrait of perfection as well as the path to get there. It's amazing.
0: That's worth underscoring. Do you mind...
1: Uh, they are both that. The, um, a picture of that state of perfection, which is the ultimate goal that Vedanta talks about, as well as the path to get there in one image. So, uh, Swami has a great book, The Symbolism of Hindu Gods and Rituals, and uh, it's uh, it's remarkable. It goes into all these gods and goddesses and rituals and gets into the, the deep philosophical underpinning under all of them, which
0: is still profound. haven't I haven't really read that book. I'm yeah,
1: it'll so consumed by
0: the it's pretty the others, but yeah, yeah. and that's uh, a decent segue into what is Vedanta. Um, and and this philosophy of these Upanishads, that um, that I think I grew up the two weeks I probably spent in in school learning about it, um, if that involved thinking there's ten thousand gods yeah. and goddesses and yeah. and having no clues, it was the
1: original monotheistic philosophy. Sure, it's uh, even more than monotheistic. Right, even if you can even call it monotheistic. Yeah, it's. Uh it's transcendental philosophy. Mm. There, it's not saying that there's one God looking over everything. It's not monotheism in that way. It's, it's transcendental. Mm. It's non-duality. It's talking about a non-dual truth. Right. So yeah, truth is one. That's so, the thing.
0: Do you mind, um, do you have a, uh, a ready-made kind of five-minute breakdown of what
1: Vedanta is for folks?
0: Um, and then i'm sure many questions will flow from there
1: yeah it's a manual for life but i think everybody here's is quite is anyone not familiar with at all with vedanta okay yeah a little bit so um vedanta is ancient indian philosophy born in the not born in the himalayas but first first written in the himalayas as it were and uh as we're talking it it Initially really only talks about the highest truth of life. What is ultimate reality? What is your true nature? What is essential being? What is the origin? What these huge questions, you know? uh, What is existence itself? What is isness itself? Over time it's been uh, further and further um, fleshed out and elucidated to become It doesn't lose that essential Uh, focus but it just these masters keep coming back down the trail as it were to meet us where we are you know what I mean it's like originally they just need to tell you the truth and you're done thousands of years ago people of that quality the students of that quality uh, they only needed these highest pointings to say you are the self look within and that's it but now we're like okay but I've got stress I've got strain I've got a job I've got life to deal with so they are so generous in their, um, their compassion, as it were, to try to attract people towards this higher state of being, that they keep coming down to explain, okay, you want to talk about what to do in the world, how to do it in the world, how to do it better, how to be more peaceful in the world, so that you can reach that higher state. Um, so this has gone on for 5,000 years. So what we have now is a manual for life and living. This is how we talk about it. It's, a, it's something that is useful wherever we are in life. It's not just esoteric uh, transcendental philosophy. Um, and uh, basically helps us to optimize our living, optimize our existence. If you, if you read the manual of something before you use it, you'll use it better. You use it more fully. If I read the manual from my phone... Uh, before I buy before I use it I'll use my phone better this is the idea or I can just use it like press the buttons call press numbers you know I can just use it like a Nokia phone in the 90s and not knowing that it can connect to the internet and talk to people different ways and all these things so like in the same way we can just live our life as humans instinctually feeding ourselves and reproducing ourselves, sheltering ourselves, we can do that um, and completely miss the higher purpose of life, which is to know that deeper thing. From a Vedantic point of view, that the purpose of life is to know that deeper truth. That's what we're here to do. That is the unique capacity of a human being. So it takes us all the way from how to, how to live, when to sleep, when to eat, how to relate to each other, how to do actions, how to succeed in life, all these things, all the way up to how to reach that highest state which we are heir to. So it's a manual for life and living.
0: Some of, it in that Sanatana Dharma, the eternal principles, which is also a, a uh, synonym for, yeah, come on in, um, which is also a synonym for, for Vedanta, eternal principle, and Vedanta meaning end of knowledge or culmination of knowledge, or the end of the Vedas, um, it's uh, in the, those highest ideals. I feel like some of the highest ideals that I think about most that Vedanta covers is these little knowledge bombs that in this manual it's, it's not like it's like here's an, a, a principle and then it is 17 paragraphs to understand it. It's like here's a principle and it's like three sentences or like one sentence. Like right action being that which generates energy. And I think about something like that, this little knowledge bomb mm-hmm. that I'll have to underscore that um, our teacher, Swami Parthasarathy, and to your point of meeting you where you are, breaks yeah. it down in the simplest, most beautiful, most practical and like mundane here on this Friday, mm-hmm. to the transcendental, to mm-hmm. helping something I'll pick up this Friday, might serve me seven years from now, yeah. um, likely will. but. That type of approachability is so beautiful within it, uh, in that just defining right action as come on in, just defining right action as uh, that which generates energy, mm-hmm. wrong action that which dissipates energy. Sure. Um, the before we get into what Vedanta is is not, and this is just this is where I, I've been. My mind has been the the last week. Yeah. Um, mind and intellect, do you mind talking about one of the central contributions within this this philosophy of the self, which 5,000 years ago might have been three words Mm -hmm. imparted to a student in the Himalayas in the Himalayan mountains. Mm. Now might be a 400-page text, but it's still so simple. Um, Could you talk about uh, some of the central contributions that are uh, critical into even hearing those words that are either so big we can't hear them, you are the self, you are that mm-hmm. thou art, you mm-hmm. are it. Mm-hmm. Or so small that it's like, I'm the self, but I've got eight meetings today. I've got yeah. uh, to get across town. Do you mind talking about some of the central contributions that take someone towards really hearing
1: that? Yeah, so you there's different pointers in that direction. Um, But to really bring it back to basics, Vedanta starts by saying, every human being is a combination of spirit and matter. Spirit is another word for self, is another word for consciousness, another word for God. In Sanskrit, it's Atman, Brahman. So every human being, Vedanta says, is essentially that self, that Atman, that core isness that is of the nature of consciousness chaitanya is is one of the words so many words for it so many different ways it points at it plus matter plus a body which we know which perceives and acts plus emotions which is at the level of what is translated as mind but in the west we might understand better as heart it's called manah or manas in sanskrit and then there's another equipment in us, buddhi, which is the intellect. So, every human being has a body with two equipments within that body. Body, mind, soul is a bit blurry compared to Vedanta. It's a bit loose. We all say that. You'll hear body, mind, soul a lot. Um, but it's not quite precise as as Vedanta in, in this way. So. Vedanta says there's actually two equipments that we need to know about. So what they are... Two internal equipments. Two internal equipments. There's a body, mind, intellect. These are all matter. The body's gross matter. The mind, intellect is subtle matter. Mm -hmm. The enlivener of all of that is the consciousness, is the self, which is what you're asking Mm -hmm. about. So you can say, I am the body. You can say, I am the mind. I am the intellect I am my perceptions and actions I am my sensations I am my feelings I am my ideas I am all of that you could say I'm a combination or you can say I am the self I am that which enlivens all of these things which is that's the state of self realization to not just to say it but a person who has actually in that experience right so the Vedanta starts, always moves from the known to the unknown. That's such a great point. Yeah, do you mind building that out a little more? So this is what we've just demonstrated. You start with, okay, I know I have a body. Sure. But I say, I am this body. Who's that I am? You say, my body. My, my feet are cold. I am hot. You're not hot. Your body's hot. Your feet, but you say, my feet are cold. Who's the possessor there? It's a possessive pronoun, my, over the body. We use it all the time. It's right in front of us in English. In our language, it, it, these are all pointers to say, wait, wait, who, who's, who's the possessor of this body that's having these sensations? You only say, my body. You say, my, my feelings are hurt. I, you know, whose feelings are hurt? Or my intellect is really sharp this morning, or my intellect is dull. I'm really clear today. I'm not thinking so well today. My, my thoughts are not clear. Whose thoughts? This is one thing that we, hmm. Vedanta starts to point us in that way, by recognizing for yourself, what is that consciousness that's aware of the body-mind-intellect, that is the witness at all times to the body-mind-intellect? The three states of consciousness we go through, deep sleep, dream, waking, every day. As a deep sleeper, you say, I am nothing. As a dreamer, you say, I am whoever you are in the dream with the dream world. As a waker, you say, I am James, and this is James's world. I am, I am, I am, goes on. But the dreamer is not the waker. It's a completely different existence the waker is not the dreamer neither of them are the deep sleeper they are absolutely separate personalities yeah, tied so many- by one thing that that's the direction that's how we move in that direction one of the ways there's so many ways but that i'd say that was probably the fundamental when i think
0: about what that that progression of what is vedanta what are the what are the upanishads what are the vedas saying it's a manual for living yeah and and it's and it's that's one of the things that it is not that I thought. I thought it was an esoteric philosophy. Most philosophies are. Yeah. Quite esoteric. Quite uh, there's sandbox for the mind that doesn't apply to what's happening in 30 minutes, much less what's happening right now. Hmm. And yet, this manual for living is is a great one-liner of it's not for. 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. and then the rest of the day is, is separate. It is, it is. I mean, I was going to get coffee today and, uh, get to arrive to get the coffee for the event. And, and, uh, the barista says, okay, it'll be about 25 minutes. And I was like, uh, I thought it was like ordering coffee. It's like, oh no, I got to fix the machine. It'll be about 25 minutes. Yeah. And it was such a blessing of, I'm in a rush, impatiently. Mm. For a conversation on philosophy yeah. that applies to this very frustrating yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And all the way through sitting down and uh, the nerves yeah. in front of people live. Then yeah. it's like, okay, what is the what is causing those nerves? Oh, because yeah. I want it to go well. Sure for the perspective of me, this is yeah. entering I and me. Yeah. All right, the manual quite clearly would say, oh yeah, that's how you'll make something go poorly. Yeah, Enter the I and my instead of that higher ideal. Yeah. So it's so practical and then taken to the, the practicality that I know I've had to hear and read a thousand times of the two internal equipments, the three equipments for any human body, mind, intellect, but the two internal being mind and intellect just hearing that there is this other equipment, like another, it's like having another, um, another tool in the toolkit or another. Sure, sure. Um, you have something else in the golf bag for this shot. Yeah. And and you don't just have two clubs. You have right. this other club. Yeah. Um, the utility club, which is, those are all the, the rage right now. I don't even mm-hmm. play golf, but I know that that's a whole new club that people are like, you gotta get a utility club. Yeah. And knowing that, I, that there is this intellect then allows me to say, oh, it's th- the undeveloped intellect that is causing extreme frustration that I'm running late or that I co- overcommitted
1: yeah. to cause
0: this scenario. Yeah,
1: so it's not the undeveloped intellect. It's the overdeveloped mind. Mm. It's, the, it's the involvement in uh, what we're doing. It's the the lack of elbow room between us and our life. So, uh, when we are involved in something, we're, when we're affected by something, we will be agitated. We will go with whatever happens to it. It's a very raw, um, I don't know, exposed way of living. You know, so when you... Develop the intellect through all of this higher thinking that we're talking about, through identification with the reality, thinking about the truth, and all that. Through knowing you have it? Through even knowing you have the intellect, sure. Um, but ultimately, getting on to the higher thoughts that we've been talking about. When you do that, you start to be a witness. It's called Sakshi in Sanskrit. You become a witness to your own life. So you understand, OK, the, the coffee guy is late or there are nerves in the body or there are the whatever it is, the chair is comfortable or not comfortable or whatever the situation is and still be able to function without mm-hmm. affectation. So this is this is self-sufficiency. This is independence rather than being completely dependent on the world and affected by the world and what's going on in the world. Mm. or relationships or in the workplace or whatever if you are in life but life is happening but it's, you there's a part of you that you are apart from it like an actor on a stage that's the ideal approach mm. according to vedanta all the world's a stage all the men and women are mere players they have exits and entrances so you function in your life you play your roles like an actor on a stage Was that
0: Bill Shakespeare?
1: Bill. Old Bill. Yeah. Um, Correct. And so he knows his true identity. This is the point. In mm. and through his activities.
0: He knows there's work to be done. There is a
1: a role to play. He plays the role. He does the role as best as he can. That's not in his hands. The results are not in his hands. He plays his role, which liberates him from... uh, having that extra, Oh, will I succeed? Will I fail? What will people think? Well, all that doesn't matter. You play this, your role this because is about to die. I'm going to have to die. And he's completely, he's, he's fixed on his identity. So mm-hmm. yes, you're right. Number one is, um, understand we have a mind and an intellect. The intellect can stand apart from the mind for sure. You don't have to be completely victimized by the mind all the time. You don't have to identify with it all the time. The intellect can stand apart. That's what it does. That's its job. More than that, the intellect can be strengthened to see your own personality from higher and higher viewpoints. Like video games, you know, where you can press the button and you can go out above the car or like closer to the car or at the steering wheel or whatever it is. It's like that. You become, you become able to witness your own life. Uh, Stand apart from it.
0: And there's a, a few different pointers <clears throat> that, that I've loved. The one you've said recently was, uh, act as if you are looking at your neighbor from three blocks, the neighbor from three blocks away. And you want that neighbor to, well, you want them, from speaking for myself, you want that neighbor to be a good neighbor, mm. a good father, mm. You obviously want them to be honest, like you w- with that detachment from three blocks away, I also love that you said three blocks away, because then mm-hmm. it's really like, I don't want anything of them. Yeah. I really just want for their own sake yeah. to have that, that satisfaction of doing what they ought to do, yeah. of not getting so caught into whatever's happening, yeah. making mistake that then, speaking of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's so famous for one decision, mm. By one character in the play in the first act, and then everybody's dead yeah. by the end. One decision. So it's uh, I love that, but I think the most prominent one that comes up again and again that I think is so valuable for for myself uh, to remind myself is the is the the dream. Yeah. And that being, do you mind walking a little bit more into how that is maybe the perfect I say metaphor, but it is so literal to us because. I had a dream last night that I could have sworn was real.
1: Yeah. uh, So um, the, as we were saying, the idea is to gain self-sufficiency, meaning being satisfied in yourself without any, no matter what's going on around you or even in your body or in your mind or in your clarity or dullness of intellect to be self-sufficient, to be independent. That's the, ultimate freedom that everybody's looking for, right? So, um, one way of doing that is to understand the reality or unreality of this world that we're so preoccupied with all the time, including the personality that we refer to as I. So, in the dream, the dreamer and the dream world arise together. They happen at the same time. You go to sleep, all of a sudden you're in a dream and it's the dream universe is five billion years old, and it's just as real as this for the dreamer. You not makes the, perfect sense why you're in this scenario because of everything,
0: whatever yeah. you have projected behind. It's like, of course, I'm in this. The dreamer walking. has a
1: full has a full suite of of history and reality and everything that the waker has. So Vedanta says, if you believe that the dream is unreal you have no more reason to believe that this waking state is any more real. Now, if you believe the dream is real, the I don't know what to say. Like, there's nothing to say to you. I don't know. There's an if there. there are, I've had people be like, actually, I believe uh, the dream is real. I'm like, okay, cool. Good on you. What can I say? But Vedanta says, if you believe the dream is unreal, and that your identity there is unreal, you have no, there's nothing you can say to prove that the waking state and this waker are any more real now. If you reflect upon this, varam varam, again and again and again, you keep on reflecting upon this for years, keep on doing the e-learning course, keep on reading the books, attending the classes, everything we do. After a while, there, there, you start to develop a little bit of elbow room with the external world and the things going on and what's happening in your body, what's happening in your feelings, what's happening in your thoughts. There's a detachment that happens. You get uh, liberated. I'm am t- just saying what the value is. Mm-hmm. Why why think about that? Why bother yourself with such philosophy? So that you gain that perspective. In fact, in the um, anyway, in the really old Vedic. Uh, in the, some of the Upanishads, the oldest text in Vedanta, they only have three states of consciousness. Deep sleep, dream, and enlightenment. So they just say that dream and waking are degrees of the same thing. They don't even see them, as, they don't even, they use one word. And they say, okay, okay, we'll grant you this is a little more solid than the dream. And so that later on, they're like, okay, there's two states. But before that, they're like, this is a dream. There's deep sleep, there's dream, and there's awakening. Mm. They don't even discriminate between the two. So you, your intellect, starts to tune in to reality. That's what makes us self-sufficient. That's what makes gives you that independence, self-sufficient for your peace and happiness and satisfaction. That's all we are saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like it's going to pay your bills and solve all of your problems and. It's not like that. But internally, you'll be self-sufficient for your uh, composure in life, your consistent, your your satisfaction in life. Mm-hmm. The self-realized person is absolutely free in that way. Anything can happen to them, even their death, their torture, their whatever. Nothing happens to them. Happens to the equipments. Happens to the waker. That's how they see it. So instead of saying, uh, you know, I am having i have a busy day today whatever the waker has a busy day today the neighbor three blocks away so the the thing is when i said the neighbor thing the point is you should see your own life as the neighbor sees you Mm -hmm. that's the idea or as you see the neighbor right so it's as if it's from far away from a great distance Mm -hmm. this is uh this is detachment this is uh sure sure this is uh the word ecstasy is taken from two words, ecstasis. It means to stand apart. Mm. So even that high satisfaction is that true, true peace and bliss is from non-attachment, uh, detachment from the personality and its world, mm-hmm. which are simultaneously, Arising. codependently origi- originated, as the Buddhists say
0: there's uh, and in that uh, what is Vedanta as we move into one this is the great um, kind of the deep end of the pool that yeah. we're getting in for yeah. for folks that you really can get into within a few minutes of talking about it but um, in terms of, with regards to continuous study it's the oldest it's the oldest known philosophy we have um, predating written language by thousands of years and it's, it's remarkable that it's so continuously studied and yet never... We're maybe one of, I don't know, 10 classes, 10 discussion groups in North America right now that's mm. talking about it. It's, it's so mm. wild for mm. how mm. continuous, how, how old it is, and yet uh, it being the oldest of, of these philosophies and yet so rarely discussed, especially uh, I'll say in my own, my own world, there's... Um, and that, that aspect of meeting us where we are and it building out further three states, mm. the, the waking state and the dream state being the same. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what is beyond this, the true kind of end of the, of the story? What is beyond
1: this waking state um, when okay. you say awakened? So again, it's a different way of pointing at that reality, that truth, that there's three states. Deep sleep, dream, waking. And then there's one they just call the fourth. <laughs> Very rational. <laughs> fourth. Turiya. Turiya means fourth. The fourth state of consciousness is awakening to the true I, the true self, that Atman, that infinite supreme being that that we were talking about at the beginning. So the person that... Um, okay like uh, moses asked god he says what is your name he says i am that i am i am that i am so that i am self realizing realizing that you are that i which pervades all the three states this is the state of self-realization the fourth state of consciousness Mm. and this is what everybody wants it's infinite it's all pervading it's perfect all these words bliss it's the ultimate satisfaction the ultimate bliss these are all just words 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 they're pointers to what that is but everyone knows deep down see the easiest way to do it is just ask somebody are you just a swimmer are you just a swimmer no carrie's not just a swimmer you know are you just a businessman Am I just a Vedanta guy? No. Nobody's just anything. Hmm. Nobody wants to be just anything. Because we know that we are everything. Ultimately, you know that you are infinite. Deep down, everybody knows. So nobody rests content with any amount of name, fame, power, position, status, money, family. Nothing. Nothing will absolutely completely satiate a person. No one's ever done, except those who reach that Purnamada, Purnamidam, Purnat, Purnamadachate, that state of fullness, that state of Pardipurna, he says in somewhere else, in one of the books, that state of all complete fullness. That state of complete fullness, without any limitation at all, without any boundary at all. Any boundary, you're, you won't be satisfied. Okay, you can be the, the empress of the universe, Tarastu. I grant you that, you know. You won't be satisfied. But what about the other universe? What well, yeah, about mean, the it, parallel universe? It never, it never ends until it ends. And so that Vedanta is that final, complete, infinite state that only the self-realized people have said, I'm good. Hmm. They're the only ones that said, I'm good nobody else ever says I'm good if they say I'm good it's temporary but the self-realized person they say is like an ocean no matter what you pour into them it's all, it doesn't change it because it's already full mm. they're infinite so you can add the you can add any billions and trillions of whatever you want of units of anything to the infinite it's still infinite mm. it just absorbs it because he's already there so that that's the fourth state of consciousness that is is Pure consciousness. It's okay. I'll put it another way. In the dream, deep sleep, you're conscious of nothingness. In the dream state, you're conscious of whoever you were last night and do whatever you were doing. In the waking state, you're conscious of this waking world, this personality, etc. The fourth state is pure consciousness. Put it another way. One last one. These are all pointers. What can you? You just keep yeah. The point- fly,
0: Vedanta as is- well, as, as Swami Swamiji has said to me, forget the philosophy, just find the truth. Like even it's just yeah. one big pointer. They're yeah. pointers,
1: they're pointers, but they help. And this is what we do. You st- sit and study and reflect upon these ideas. The intellect gets that vision and from that is able to guide the rest of the personality with reference to the truth. So the last one I was going to say is you can describe that fourth state as objectless awareness. So not aware of anything,
0: but just pure awareness. Which helps in this explication of, of what Vedanta is and from just even a historical perspective. Some of these things will sound so familiar to other philosophies or other um, schools of thought, and it's because, it, as uh, as Vedanta goes from this philosophy that's said sometimes in three words, Tattva Masi, six thousand years ago in the Himalayas, then a few thousand years later of symbols, of layers of rituals, culture, Hinduism gets built on top of it. Buddhism, as the adage goes, is Hinduism made for export, as it leaves India and enters China, it gets simplified down back to a philosophy without layers and then it gets its own layers and then layers you have zen which is a derivation of uh, chinese buddhism in japan but it all goes back to to the vedas and uh and really the vedic wisdom before even the vedas were mm. written down before written language was created and pure awareness will sound uh like things we might have come across in buddhism and mm. uh rightfully so but there are in the the bucket of what it is not um, what I found so interesting about it is there are no, I'll start with the mundane and then get to the more profound parts of what it is not. There are no rites, there are no rituals. There's no like at 14, this happens. There's no sh- thou shalt, thou shalt nots. There's no growing up in a Catholic household. It's like you better word every word <clears throat> in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. To show that you belong and you better believe. Yeah. All of these 17 things, and if you don't believe one of them, mm. careful, eternal damnation might be. Mm, mm. Uh, and that was, that was also, I must say, very much a version that I grew up with. It is not, I don't think it's purely canon. I don't think it's what everybody in the universal, you know, Catholic Church grew up with. But that was my experience and mm. um, in our parish's experience. It's so different from that even like thinking about it, even though it does deal with God, thinking about it in any way of a religious sense is a misconception because there's, there is no, in fact, Swami says it all the time. He's like, just put it on the shelf if you don't. Mm-hmm. And he'll tell this to me of like, if something doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. you don't have to believe it at all. In fact, yeah. nothing should pass through yeah. uh, unless it, it makes rational and reasonable sense. Yep. But that's some of the things that it is not. Some of the things that are maybe in the more profound side of things that we can get caught up in, I know that I can, is maybe one of the largest misconceptions is that the idea of a philosophy like this requires um, relinquishing the world, selling all your possessions. Yeah. Could you walk through this concept of renunciation, which is so core to Vedanta. The yep. Why its core and then also what it is and
1: what it is not. So like what you're saying, Vedanta is universal. It applies to all people everywhere, all human beings. It's uh, throughout the Gita there's this one word yaha, which means he who. Or they who, I don't know how you translate exactly. But he'll give a the the Gita will make a statement, it'll give a truth, it'll give some insight into life and it'll say, He who practices it will get this result. You know, or it'll say if you if you live this way, you'll get it. it, it whomever knows it and, and uh, practices it will get these results or not. You know, it doesn't. There's no discrimination, whatever, whatsoever. There's no vows. It's not like anyone's in the Vedanta club or not in the club. There's no like something you have to do or not do. There's no such thing. Uh, that way, it's not a religion. It, 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 everybody's a Vedantin until you decide to be something else. It's like that you know like if you're a human being you're in the club so uh with regard to renunciation it's because it's just the laws of life just before i get into renunciation it's like the law of gravity applies to all of us whether we know it or not like it or not agree with it or not it's governing us right now every moment you know the whatever air pressure and barometric pressure and this and that, all these things that are governing us, whether we know it or agree with it or don't, it's governing us. So Vedanta is just saying, look, these are the laws. This is what's governing you. This what, is what life what is. What is so interesting is yeah. Dharma, which yeah.
0: is the whole, the whole purpose, it means truth, it yeah. means nature, it means law. Oh, it means so many things. Yeah. So many things, and oh. yet it means all of those. And, yeah. and to my Western mind, it's like, oh no, those are all different. The law isn't nature. I guess there are laws of nature, yeah. but truth isn't yeah. this squirrel in front of me. No, no, no. Truth is this ethereal thing. And yet uh, to the Vedanta or to the Vedas, it's like, no, these are all the same thing. Yeah. Like gravity, yeah. you can't escape truth and it's not some
1: esoteric thing. Yeah. Vedanta just says, look, we're this is a collection of, of understanding of life and living uh, that if you learn it, it will help you because you'll be dealing with as things as they are. And it's better to deal with things as they are than as we would like them to be or dream they may be or think they may be. So um, universally applicable cliff notes for life. Hmm. Um, Renunciation is widely misunderstood. People think renunciation, vairagya, means that you have to give things up. And the fact is you cannot give up anything. It's impossible to give something up. You can't do that. You can't say I'm going to give up this or give up that. You can only take up something higher. So renunciation is not hiding away from the world, not dealing with the world sitting in a cave or a monastery or an ashram for the rest of your life. That's not renunciation. Nor is renunciation living in the world, but with certain limits. You can be in the world, but don't touch it.
0: Avert your gaze. Don't look over don't there. Don't look,
1: you know. I mean, and these have nasty consequences, these understandings of renunciation. The Catholic Church, sorry, but you can be in the world, but don't touch it. So then we get into the problems. Uh, okay, you can. So it's not about getting away from the world. It's not about being in the world with limits. Uh, in fact, some of the the greatest uh, vedantic masters were actually kings called raja rishis. Uh, King sages, like, fully in the world, living in a level of luxury that is probably illegal now, you know? uh, Things that we can't even imagine their kind of pleasures and enjoyments. I remember you telling me Buddha had one servant for every finger. Yeah, I read that one time, yeah. He apparently had one person in charge of each finger. As a prince, this is before. Lord Buddha, I (laughs) mean So, like, we don't even know, uh, these Bezos or Musk or whatever, they can't, they'd be in jail if they tried to enjoy at the level of these people, how they enjoyed the world. Krishna, Lord Krishna himself, was described as Nitya Brahmachari. Nitya means ever, Brahmachari means celibate. He's described as Nitya Brahmachari. And yet they say, I don't know, he had 14,000 wives, 19,000, I forget the number. A lot. And the whole stories of Krishna are him playing with them. Gopis, they were called. You know, all kinds of. He was fully engaged with them, let's put it that way. And yet he was called Nitya Brahmachari. So, how do you be ever celibate with 14,000 wives? You know? Uh, another example is sage Durvasa, who was called uh, Nitya Upavasi, which means always fasting. He was that's how he's known. The guy was always fasting. But he was huge. He's like mm-hmm. job of the hut. Mm-hmm. And he always had food, always all the pictures of him, he's with food, foods falling out of his mouth, out of his nose, like How is he always fasting? So you can be in the world but not of it. That's renunciation. And I'm not saying everyone should be like, cool, now I'm just gonna go rage, you know? That's not the point either. But the point is, you can have life, you can have success, you can have relationships, you have love, everything, but keep it in the right understanding. This is true renunciation. So it's not hiding from the world, it's not um, limiting ourselves to, or it's not uh, being in the world but not touching it, nor is it establishing any limits. Renunciation is taking up a higher thing. Attaching to something higher. So taking up, not giving up. Taking up, not giving up. Like climbing a ladder. You can't climb a ladder just hopping without reaching up. I mean, you can try, but you'll fall. And you can't climb a ladder without gripping, without attaching. You've got to yes. attach to the higher and pull yourself up. This is it. Mm. So a person that wants to be, I don't know. To lose weight or to do something like that ultimately what they're doing is aiming to be healthy there's the power aim to be healthy even better than that is i want to be healthy for my children i so many people talk to us like that you know i want to give up this thing now i have kids i need to like you know stop doing this stop doing that like live better for whatever reason mm-hmm. very common that's renunciation so you're not at the bar till 3 a.m anymore you're not doing dangerous things. Yeah, I want to see my kids. I want to meet my grand. It's a slightly higher ideal. This is renunciation. So it makes you um, liberated from your lower tendencies. That's all is to identify with the higher values, the higher goals in life, the more unselfish goals, the more sacrificial goals. Hmm. All of this, this is true renunciation. But people think Vedanta is like the boogeyman. I mean, not so much here, people don't know, but India, it's really bad. How come? Do you mind telling a little bit more? And, I then, mean, if, and this is,
0: feel free to take it in other common
1: misconceptions. That, no, I mean, people think like Vedanta is going to steal your children and they're going to be like in a, the Temple of Doom or something mad, you know. It's really?
0: Like, oh, yeah. Like they have that thought of like if their kids go to a monastery, <laughs> yeah, go to yeah, a... Yeah. Oh, um, if, they
1: go, if my kids yeah. go to an ashram, like what'll oh, happen? They won't get married. It's like here, it's not a big deal, but India, that's like the worst thing. You don't get married. Oh, what will happen if they don't get married? Oh, they don't they, they don't grandkids. start a job. They won't have yeah, they won't have money. I, we won't have grandkids. Mm. And that it I was in San Francisco for a little while. And uh, I used to go to the temples there for the food, to be honest, because <laughs> they mm-hmm. serve free food. And it'd be like me and like all the single computer engineer guys who all Indians who want food. You go to the temple. So I'd go to the temple. I'd say hello to the God and then go eat. And I started feeling guilty. So after a while, I was like, I'll go offer them something. So I went to the head of the, one of the temples in San Jose, actually, not right in San Francisco. I said, uh, look, man, I'm loving your food here. And the temple is so great. Um, I'd, love to, I'd love to offer some Bhagavad Gita classes to the community. That's what I do. And he said, um, oh, we already have elderly uh, classes here. We already have classes for the elderly. This is the Indian understanding of Bhagavad Gita. So, At a temple. At a temple. So my teacher, Swamiji, Swami Parthasarathy, we should mention, we haven't mentioned yet. Swamiji, for years, has been putting up billboards in India before his lectures on the Gita that say, Bhagavad Gita is not a retirement plan.
2: <laughs> and it's amazing,
1: you know. And uh, so people have this idea that, if you start studying Vedanta too, too young, you'll be unemployed. You won't do anything in life. And it's only what you do at, at, after retirement. Sit and read the Gita. It is a madness. Mm. Because it's a manual for life. What's the point in reading the manual just before you trade in the phone? Mm. What's the point? I was, I was shaking my head just because
0: all of my 20s was just overflowing with stress, with exhaustion depression for an 18 month stint mm-hmm. burnout it was just so lost and then and then it was uh, coming across this this philosophy um, and then really taking it seriously like 4 years in it was like oh my god this is the man this is how it should be done mm-hmm. and then these it's like planting the fruit tree mm-hmm. in the sunlight Mm-hmm. instead of complaining why is this not growing any fruit mm-hmm. and it why learn that you know once your orchard is dying yeah um and yet i i could see why that would potentially happen in that it's it's something that you go through experience and you realize that isn't it yeah it's not out there those mistakes all culminated in this explosion this midlife crisis and so then you maybe take to it when you're 43 you take to it when you're 61 after exhausting all the alternatives and then you find so much value in it And then within yeah. your family like oh, yeah, that's what I'll do when I'm when I'm 61. Yeah
1: um, No, I mean when I've tried to be, everything to be else. clear it's useful anytime So I mean anytime people take the time to think about these higher truths of life. It will help but just in the context of misconceptions see i think here like people don't know about it enough they think it's like some new thing like oh vedanta is like a new it's a new technology like awesome let's 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 get into this new yoga for your intellect Mm. thing so that's cool they don't they are not like they don't like know enough to be jaded about it which is great um but in the indian context it is a misconception um uh in that way uh it's that's what we want to highlight is Mm. that there's a misconception that it's not for life itself that it's for when you're at the end of life and Mm. only want to think about what happens when I die and stuff it's
0: it's so much more practical than that the last one and then we'll jump into Q&A would be is it compatible with the other philosophies and the other religions that that we have, might have a strong identity with because there feels like it feels like there's truth within those yeah, as
1: well. For sure, it, Christ, it, Moses, yeah, Muhammad. Um, it's the base of all religion. To the extent religions are true, they are Vedanta. I think that's the right way to say that. Okay, whatever truth is in in a religion, that's Vedanta. Vedanta is like just a big word for the the ground that all of this, all these ideas stand on. So it, because there's no boundary around Vedanta, it's like, oh, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's Vedanta. Anything that's true is Vedanta, anything. So Shakespeare's true, Vedanta. We we study Wordsworth and Goldsmith and Thoreau and Emerson and Shakespeare, all in the ashram because there are elements of truth in all of them. Hmm. But the total comprehensive, entire truth that word that whatever that is we're saying is Vedanta understand so uh, all of a lot of the traditions have truth more or less some more some less and uh, that way they're they're all rooted in this Mm. and literally they come from this so many of the isms come out of Vedanta Right. For sure, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Taoism, all the Eastern stuff obviously comes from these. But even less obviously is very clear suspicions and, and evidences that all the best of of Greek thinking, the Judeo-Christian thinking, all of it was connected by the Silk Road. Yeah, that Axial Revolution, that then there's an
0: explosion, yeah. 400, 500 B.C., that happens to be at the same time the trade routes Sure. are connected. Yeah it's okay there's so much uh, else that i'd love to discuss but i would love to open it up yes, for sure. uh for q a Q&A from from anyone that that has heard things that it's like what the hell did they just say um and maybe one last thing around round out is that is that misconception that you are that yeah which can be said as you are god yeah the misconception is if you were to say that to me is to think oh james is god that's the whole miss the point aspect it's not this right thing that i identify right. that's the thing that blocks right me from being that or uh, from realizing that i am that because we yeah, are that a, whether we know point. it or not
1: that's a great point
0: um, okay uh, are there any any questions and first
1: YFYI ever q and a yes the first <laughs> this live is be event. the first YFYI questioner ever i guess i got to take yeah. It. yeah man do it um, I, I
2: think this last point you kind of went to with baggage and like yeah I mean it rings really true for me and mm. my parents are now in their
0: and, and for listeners we'll, re, we'll repeat okay. the uh, the question no 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 I'm just letting okay. listeners know we'll repeat the question uh, for, for those listening on the podcast cool.
2: Cool. parents are now in their 60s and they're now doing these like elderly Geetla classes it's funny it's like literally like, I guess it's a cliche that I didn't even really know about but that's like yeah. what my mom is doing every weekend now yeah um, but uh, so that really rings true but like I think you 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 two guys are people who have come to a philosophy that's different from what they like grew up around. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for anyone below the age of 60 that's getting into this, getting into spirituality, do you think that it's beneficial to come from an outside perspective and discover like mm-hmm. a new separate thing that is not necessarily what some of what you were surrounded by, or do you actually think? I mean, in some cases, some people in their 30s, you know, might be getting. Deeper into Catholicism, which they move mm. around, right? Do you think that there's a difference there, or is it sort of like people have their individual path? What
0: do you think? Uh, so the question, um, really for, for Joseph, is, uh, do you think it's easier coming from the outside, coming in, uh, versus growing up with it, um, nominally or or closely, and and potentially having a tougher time because of the baggage or the jadedness, like you know being told to read Crime and Punishment? In eighth grade, completely mm. destroys the value of, yeah. of the book when it's like too maybe perhaps too young for uh, I know for me um, I hated that I hated that book and and then I
1: reread it I was like oh my god but Joseph um, no one's ever asked me that question that's interesting uh, so is it valuable to take up a philosophy that you were not exposed to by birth or from your your sort of natural surroundings I think it's, it could go both ways you know like if you in many ways like especially all my friends and brothers and sisters in India at the ashram it's like so much of it was like in the air literally literally I fully believe it's in the air That place is special for a reason. There's some subtle recording that's gone on for thousands of years somehow that's there. So they've had that benefit of just being in that, what we call Mahat. Mahat means like a total influence. Like the Mahat of Santa Monica is like a very particular Mahat. The Mahat of Dallas or Houston or Montreal, each one's got its own vibe, you know, its own energy its own whatever's been stored in the air so at least particularly india is such a conducive atmosphere that before it was called india it was called bharat land of light as you know so it's it's been the storehouse of this wisdom for so long that it's it's like it's like in the food you know i used to have this idea it was so weird this thought used to come to me like after a few months in india i'd be like okay now I've been eating all the food only from India for the last four, like I'm I'm Indian now, like all my cells are now made of India. And it was like such a weird thought, but like I used to be like, that's good. I used to think that's good for some reason. So uh, to be, to be uh, surrounded by that, I think um, helps in, in a certain way, but can also be negative in that you don't, uh, that you kind of take it for granted and and you don't put in the effort to to deeply understand it. Whereas, when you have to make a choice to take up a life or to take up a worldview or to take up an understanding, when you make a choice, uh, it becomes more your own in that way. Uh, So... um, uh, I'm saying you can make the choice, even if you're in that place. But you have to like still decide to own it for yourself. It it can't just be passively absorbed. Vedanta doesn't work that way. At least with with, with regard to Vedanta. Vedanta, you have got to. Even the guru, just because you have a guru telling you this is the truth, it doesn't work. You have he can't give it to you. Nobody can give it to you. You have to decide. To reflect and understand and discover the self, your the self within you. Uh, so the whole tradition's like that. It's so, um, um, yeah, it's both. I, I think it could go either way. Yeah. I've, I've gone back and forth. I remember telling you
0: like two years in saying, man, I'm actually really glad that this was a, a choice and a far bridge to cross because... Um, and uh, listeners of the podcast will know that, and Ajay, you'll know, I listened to Alan Watts for four years. Thousands of hours of a great Eastern uh, philosopher, philosopher uh, and uh, interlocutor mm-hmm. that re- really kind of helped that bridge get shorter and shorter. And, and these concepts weren't so strange once I picked up the Not to treat us. But I used to be thankful um, that it was like I had no baggage. And I just got to go straight to Vedanta treatise versus there are people in the ashram that, uh, that are there. Three generations of people following Swami and there's people that are there, Indian families, where the family won't talk to them, try to come get them from the ashram. There are a lot of stories of people that go against the family wishes and parents going, trying to get the kids out of the ashram and they're like, no, I'm staying here. And there's, there's both of that from the Indian perspective sure that's there from the foreign American, European, kind of Australian perspective of pa- families feeling that. But I used to feel like I was glad there's no um, dirty lenses of misinterpretation, uh, uh, ritualized, accentuating desire. Catholicism, for me and my relationship with God growing up, it was like, you have desires, God will help those desires get fulfilled. It was, when I look back, it's was like, oh my God, what a perversion of the whole point being to rise above desires. Instead, use this book, these words, this prayer to get more, um, which has that perversion of taking you more into the world. And I felt like I'm so glad I didn't have that with Vedanta. In the last three years, I probably have said to you many times, like, there are, there are great teachers online. Swamis, multiple generations. And I've thought to myself, how great that would have been to have like, three generations of it being in the air, in the water, Mm. Um, because it is such still and will be such a far bridge because the the mahat of the culture that we grow up in, it's so, the average American, I just saw this a week ago, uh, updated numbers, the average American is subjected to four to 10,000 advertisements a day. (laughs) So just in 2022, Four to 10,000 messages of you are incomplete instead of Paripurna, ultimate satisfaction. You are unsatisfied. You are incomplete. And this degree from this business school, you get this watch, this car, this will complete. And I think now I'm like, man, what a disadvantage to have that much of a current to swim against in 2022 as a 36-year-old American. And uh, And so I actually have been like, man, this would have been great a couple hundred years ago, Hmm. three generations. So, yeah, to your point, I I thought it was like crime and punishment at 25. That's when you should read it. And um, now I'm like, man, I wish this was kind of taught in the household for a couple generations.
1: I think, um, yeah, I think the choice thing is, the effort is what matters. An example I have, I was thinking of is Dwarik. I don't think he'll mind if he watches this. Um, Dwarik is Swamiji's grandson. Like it's like not just in the air and like in the food, it's like in the blood, man. I mean, Swamiji is your grandfather. Your mother is Sunandaji, who's gonna run the ashram at some point and is herself a world traveling, epic Vedanta speaker master. But um, he was into cars. And motorcycles and was like racing motorcycles and nobody ever said anything to him like he didn't it's grow like up in super the super
0: accomplished motorcycle
1: really racing. yeah super crazy motorcycle like one was like the best in india as a junior and whatever went to england studied um how to make race car engines or something i don't know what he did engineering but for cars for engines but at some point he he'll tell the story and he'll say at some point he Obviously was aware of Vedanta the whole time. He used to go to the ashram as a, stu- as a kid like it was like summer camp, you know But he wasn't like I want to do this like that um, Apologies full, t- full for the time
0: plan- for the plane above us listeners. Yeah, but I don't think they'll hear with this. Okay, I got it canceled maybe.
1: out. So um, uh, At some point he'll say he made a decision that he himself decided look I've understood for me that a life dedicated to this study and reflection and serving this cause is what, it, what matters. Not because I'm Swami's grandson. I mean, you can't ever separate it completely, but like that's, I just give that example because it's so, such an extreme example. Even him is like, the power is his own choice. And he takes just as much sort of, I, I don't want to say pride, but satisfaction in his choice to do the work he's doing as any of us do who are like, I'm out. Going to India, for him it was the same thing because he had a whole another life that he could have he could have lived through. So yeah, anything uh, done by choice is transformative. Uh, Thoreau again, he said, "I went to the woods to live deliberately, not just to passively live and go along with whatever's going on." To the moment you make a choice, you own it then it's really yours and that's where the that's where the transformation is which is the only point yeah and speaking of vedanta history it's a new transcendentalist
0: thoreau uh yeah. wordsworth um elizabeth browning elizabeth browning daniel hawthorne daniel hawthorne all the boston brahmins was their name because they read the gita each each uh, each morning yeah. um and uh yeah so it's uh, the lineage is very clear in american history yeah Amy.
2: Yeah, i'm at feels like, I always think about this concept of readiness and just receptivity, right? And I think that's maybe what happens later in life, we're kind of on this like motivation cycle and at some point there's this receptivity, I would say grace, something that happens where your perspective changes. How does Vedanta talk about this? Because it could be for some people at 20, but other people it takes many, many cycles to get to the point where you open to this. Mm. Yeah, I like what? that. I like. What that? Yeah.
0: And just to repeat the question. Oh, right. Sorry, I'll, I'll, sorry. I'll, I'll repeat good. the. Uh, Nimi asked, what causes the receptivity? 25? Um, 55? Uh, does Vedanta
1: talk about that uh, openness? We were talking about this yesterday. It's like, and I'm glad you used the word grace. Um, it's real close to grace. Uh, why do we at some point. Why are we at some point available to these ideas and at some point we're not? It sounds like complete nonsense at other points in our life. Why? And you're right. It is readiness. It is our own readiness. It is our own ripeness. Like a tree ready to, a fruit ready to fall off a tree. Um, but there is some element of grace in it, for sure. There's some, as uh, uh, he says, the divinity. there's a divinity that shapes our ends, you know. Something that is drawing us towards that all the time, however, that works. I don't really know. So, grace is a, is a nice way of talking about it. But uh, Ramana Maharshi, one of the great saints in this in the last hundred years, he said that he would say that the thought of God is, uh, is grace. That if you have the thought of God itself. Like to yourself, God in the true sense of what is that ultimate supreme being that we are, essentially. If you get to that thought itself, he says, that is the highest grace. Um, So how to get onto that thought. We were talking about yesterday. It's like, how do you, if you're on a level of like just dealing with the world all the time, there's only the world, there's only things I've got to be concerned about. You have to get knowledge to get off that ring and get up to another ring. But if you don't have the knowledge to get to the knowledge, you're not going to get to the knowledge. It's this terrible catch-22. So I don't know to be, to be true, but I think suffering helps. Uh, yeah, you were saying yesterday, it's like
0: the... Swami will talk about it like a wheel. Yeah. Where you're on top of the world, it's great, and then the world crushes you. Yeah. And then you're back on top three, four years, you're just swimming yeah. it and it crushes you. And enough of those times, then you're like, okay, this wheel just keeps crushing
1: me, even if it feels like like I'm... What is this? You know, Or, um, or you catch a wave and your mind stops. And you say, whoa, what was that experience? Or you see a hummingbird drinking from a flower in a particular way in a particular day, and it's just something happens to people. You just things slow down or they stop. You have moments. You have peak experiences that that kind of, um, there's a poet, Anais Nin. She said, uh, superior pleasures kill the taste for inferior ones. So it could also be that you have some peak thing happen to you. You just have a moment. We've had moments. I don't know. I had one moment in high school. I was playing golf. And I don't know. It was like something about the light and the color. And I was standing, I remember just standing there. And it's like, It's just like a different level of stillness that I I think about a lot. It's just like a stillness, a quietness. Who knows? So it could be a peak. It could be suffering. Anything that makes you think, what more is there to life? Is there something more? Is there something going on? Or by some karma, you run into a a person that has a different energy from other people you've ever met. Uh, A person like Swamiji walks in and... You, who is that? What is that? What is that person? Any of these things can be triggers, but it does boil down to to readiness, to your own ripeness, through various ways, and this could extend through lifetimes. Because some people are ready the moment they hear it. And it's teenagers. They they're like, that's it, obviously. Um,
0: if uh, people listen to our, we yeah. did a three-part series at the uh, recorded at the ashram, and in the first one. Um uh, it's, it's actually maybe the best one, two, three we've done of of essentially the whole philosophy. And um, and Joseph, yeah, it's a great listen for how he came, I think in the first 15 minutes of episode one, of that part one, he talks about that experience that you didn't think he was going to be ready and then not to put words in your mouth. And then yeah. saw this guy walking through his campus <laughs> at, at Wash U and it's yeah. like, what is that? <laughs> yeah and yeah that's uh that i think for me it was a lot of pain it was this wheel that just kept crushing Thing like i've got it i've got it figured out boom crushed and then realizing anytime i'm up here there's no point in thinking i've got it figured out because every time i think i do there's a crushing and uh and i think that that you know pain sometimes does what willpower won't to where it's like i've got to for me, I was like, I've got to find a different wiring because my current wiring of through sheer force of will, I'm going to be at the top of the mountain. I'm going to build this massively significant company and and it's going to be liberation on the other side and all kinds of different forms, prosperity and peace and being like, there. none of this is coming true and it's getting worse and worse. Um, there was uh, that helpful... Um, grace of that. Richard Rohr, a great uh, it's a author we've chatted about, great uh, Catholic friar, says that uh, we all need that, that death in life, that in-life death um, to where we are forced. And this is just his, I don't know if we all need it, but at least his viewpoint is that you need it to let go of the things that you think are like, these are making me. These are so worth holding on to. Um, so it's a, it's a welcomed blessing through suffering
1: i'll just add that um i also think of it as like launch windows you know like rockets they can't like they they have to launch when the atmosphere's in a certain thinness that's how i think of it i don't know if it's true but they can't launch all the time there's like a window and then the next window is a week later or whatever so however this thing happens to people my point is always grab it get it now while you're interested, because the mind fills it up like the atmosphere or whatever with the launch windows, you know, understand. The mind will come back in and swamp the whole thing and you won't know it. Yeah, you you were saying the other day, the mind wants to exist. The mind wants to exist, yeah. And it knows, oh, hey, this is dangerous to me, because it is dangerous. The ego wants to exist. And to get a, a taste for dissolving the ego and dissolving the mind, You really got to, if that fire comes up in you, you've got to like take care of it like a little fire in a desert or in a freezing place, you know, and uh, nurture it because that thing can close and you won't think of it again. And it's not that you'll, the rest of your life, you'll be like, oh, I missed the chance. You won't think of it again. That's the thing. And then 10 years later, you'll get it again. And you'll be like, oh, I should pay attention to that. These higher questions. You got to grab it when you get it, whenever you get it. Yeah. So the phone
2: rings quietly, and they kind of ignore it, and it just keeps ringing throughout your life, and it will get
1: louder and louder until you answer the call. Amazing, yeah. It's, it's like a phone ringing. True. The, yeah, the, uh, the
0: example given to repeat for listeners, uh, like a phone ringing, um, getting louder and louder, and, and won't stop ringing until you answer the call. Yeah, that's and Joseph Campbell, uh, which was a um, Carrie just said is a Joseph Campbell-ism. Initiated Vedanta at the uh, Vedanta Society of New York, with Joseph Campbell. Mm. Hmm. Any other questions on anything? No, no way. Yeah? I have a silly
2: story well, about gods and symbols. I always wondered um, Baby Krishna and
1: the butter. Ah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You haven't heard this. No. Okay, so Carrie's asking yeah. about um, Balakrishna baby Krishna and uh, the butter. so there's always a picture of Krishna. Krishna was mischievous as a child, you know, this is like a sign of intelligence. Uh, He was supposed to be the supreme most intelligent ever. Krishna was actually said to have only one desire, which was to be born. So the moment he was born, he was enlightened because his last desire was gone. So that he, as an infant, everything he's doing was teaching. So all the pictures of him with his mother and all that. There's a story of her, like, he ate some mud or something, and she's she taking it out of his mouth, and she saw the entire universe in his mouth. Like, these kind of really beautiful stories, but of him somehow teaching. So him going up and stealing the butter, uh, the, he'll climb up on this shelf in the kitchen and turn over the butter jar and steal it and be sitting there eating it, you know? is actually talking about the end of meditation. So, meditation is something you do at the end of the path. Traditionally, when you've gotten your mind to be able to focus on the reality deeply in contemplation, more generally concentrated, you bring it to concentrated concentration where there's only the one thought of the reality, of Om, of Brahman, of whatever, That one thought is, you bring it to that one thought and leave it. Hold it in that one thought. It goes into the silence. And then they say, Krishna steals the butter. So So, the milk to the cream to the butter. So the butter is the last, not the final, the final is ghee, but the the processing of milk, right? It goes, it's like processing your mind, solidifying your mind. Refining your mind, right, is what meditation, the the final stage of meditation does. Refines your mind to that point, like you refine the milk to the point of butter. And then something happens. The mystical is not within your effort. It's there already. You understand? The river merges with the ocean and becomes the ocean. That river has nothing to do with making the ocean. The ocean is already there. The mystic is already there. So you bring yourself to that point where you can dissolve, where there's not, where you, the last bit of you dissolves. That last dissolution of individuality, of sense of separateness, of ego, that is Krishna. He says Krishna steals the butter. Because we'll how do get rid of that last bit of mind, as it were? He says, don't worry, bring it there. Krishna comes and swipes it. Well, this is what he was. This is what Swami taught us, anyway. That Krishna is uh, trying to convey to his mother by stealing the butter all the time. He's like, "Bring it to me. Refine yourself. Bring it to this point. I'll, I'll take it." Because he is. When you're talking about Krishna, we're not talking about like a person. He's he is that state of being. He is that ultimate reality, in a in a form, as it were. And a perfect
0: example of the, that symbolism that a five year old can kind of watch in a, or see in a, in a painting or even cartoons. But then, you know, a 71 year old can say, whoa, there's something in this story I've heard a million times that just clicks because of the philosophy within the imagery. That, like I said, for nine years I was like, no, no, I don't care about. It. Christian, I don't care about. It. Uh, Ganesha, I don't care about it. Shiva, I don't care about any of these, like, philosophies incarnate into a, uh, in, into a symbolic figure. And now, I think it's time for me to read symbolism of the gods. You'll love God it. Yeah. It's amazing,
1: yeah.
0: Well, now we can leave it for, uh, we'll hang out, and uh, I want to try one of these Randy's Donuts but, uh, for any other questions. But thank you all for joining, and this is a lot of fun to get people in per to have people actually That's talk really to cool, in person. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Great. Thank you all. We'll do it again. Yes, we will. Thank you.